Hello, my friends. You are listening to Grit and Grace. My name is Taverly, and I am your host. I'm here to share my entrepreneurial journey with you, and we'll be bringing on some amazing women who've been helping me, mentoring me, and inspiring me on how Grit and Grace helps them crush it in business, relationships, fitness, family, friends, and all that good stuff. Now, let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. I am so excited today because we're going to be talking about driving change in our communities. And I have Annabelle with me literally from the other side of the globe. She is the CEO and founding director for School of Life Foundation. Annabelle is a dynamic leader and social entrepreneur who started a multinational NGO from scratch at the age of 21 with operations in both Australia and Uganda. Over the past nine years through her foundation, School for Life, she has built a team of more than 120 staff, built three schools in rural Uganda, and provided quality education to 680 students and outreach to more than 2,000 people. Annabelle knows how to drive effective change in Australia and Uganda, navigating fast growth, developing a national brand, and engaging thousands of supporters to raise more than $6 million in five years. People, Annabelle is the real deal. She has overcome huge barriers, including running two high-performing businesses in different continents on exceptionally tight budgets and dealing with cultural and gender biases, shifting mindsets and driving change and innovation, engaging her staff and building teams and raising capital, which is no small feat. Annabelle is not afraid to ask for money. She spends time developing targeted strategies for adopting corporate partners, which y'all know is my jam, garnering investments from high net worth individuals and engaging some of Australia's best business people to help her build the business and ensure retention of all the parties through rapid growth. She now moves her business forward to focus on sustainability, driving innovative strategies to create businesses to underpin her charity's growing operational budget, and to ensure the foundation isn't reliant solely on donations, which for those of you that have worked on the nonprofit side, you know that this is a common challenge. She is one of the youngest recipients of the Medal of the Order of Australia at just 27 years old. She is an inspiring and energetic speaker who can relate to audiences of all backgrounds and ages. Annabelle is testament to the fact that one person can make a difference and isn't short of courage, determination, and grit to make it happen. Annabelle, I am so excited to have you with me today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I love that we are doing this from across the globe. This is this is so amazing. (laughs) And of course, you know, this is a topic that I'm so passionate about. And just to let our listeners know, like how we connected between Australia and Denver, Colorado. (laughs) I have a very good friend of mine, Caitlin. Shout out to Caitlin. Thank you for introducing us. Who was a Peace Corps volunteer, and she actually worked in your program. I'm not sure when we can talk more about that, but when we started this podcast, you were at the top of her list to introduce us because she really understands the focus of my company, Corporate Cause Agency, and how important the work that businesses do to invest in their community partners. And from the moment she shared your story with me and I met you, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like my sister in a different country. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to Caitlin for recommending recommending me for the podcast. Yeah, I, you know, this is all about 
you know, sharing the stories of women that are doing amazing things. And to me, an amazing is more than just your bank account. You know, it is about Absolutely. the change that you make. And this is why I so connect with what you're, you're doing because myself, I've worked on projects in Nairobi and have worked with partners around the globe. And some of the challenges that I know that you face to do what you do are huge. Definitely. Yeah. It's not without its challenges, that's for sure. But that's what makes it fun as well. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. I, so you were 21 when you started, you know, this movement, this foundation, like why, how did, how did you, like, where did this come <laughs> up with that? You just, you were born saying, Oh, mom and dad, I'm going to go build schools in Uganda. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I, um, I was actually halfway through a law degree. I was studying at Sydney university here in mm -hmm. Australia. Um, and I didn't really have a huge amount of purpose. Um, mm. I think I was really struggling with the law degree because I was thinking to myself, how am I going to be able to use this to do something positive for the world? Um, and what I was struggling with was, you know, how am I going to shape a career around, um, I guess, litigation and what felt to me um, a lack of service and giving back. So I decided mm. to take six months break mm. and I saved up money by working in a pub and I went over to Kenya. Um, I was 20 at the time. I went over with a friend and we signed up to teach English to children as part of a volunteer program. Mm. Now, when we arrived in Kenya, unfortunately, Kenya had gone to election in 2007. And as we all know, um, elections in Africa can be quite turbulent. Right. And Actually, it's funny that you say that. Um, when we were there, I was working with um, the Denver Sister City program. And I can't think mm -hmm. of what year that we were there. But one of the years that we were there, they were in the middle of the, uh, an election as well. They were electing a new governor. And that sure. was, we happened to be in downtown Nairobi when they had mm -hmm. a rally. Terrifying. And it was, you know, we, we had security and drivers and stuff. But when we entered the governor's building downtown, they estimated that there were uh, two million Kenyans in the city square, and here we come. Yep. You know, our, <laughs> the, there are four the, people the from, yeah. right, from Colorado, All the Mazungus, as they yeah, call them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's full on. Yeah. So, so basically, um, I was in a very small rural village, mm. and there was a, a lot of unrest, and we were um, told by the Australian government that we needed to be evacuated. So we were evacuated very dramatically um, mm. at about 4 a.m. with a convoy of cars, and military armed with machine guns. Wow. So and this was when you were volunteering in... Exactly. Mm. And look, I'm a small town country girl. I grew up in the community uh, that has about 400 people. There's no mobile phone reception. Mm. I went to a primary school where there were 26 kids in my whole school. My mum was my teacher. Um, <laughs> so I was then kind of thrust into this I guess what you describe as quite a turbulent political condition. Right. And so, um, you know, mum and dad are calling on the phone going, come home now. And I'm saying, no, I'm not ready to come home yet. I've only just got here. I've put my uni degree on hold for six months. I want to be here. So I was evacuated across the border into Uganda, which is about, about three hours drive. So I just found myself in Uganda. Um, I had never planned to be in Uganda, so I didn't really have a plan. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not one to kind of give up and go home. Mm -hmm. I thought it'd be better to pivot um, and find a new way forward. And I guess when I found myself in Uganda, I was 
you know, there were no longer any operations that the organisation that I'd originally signed up to go to Kenya with there. So I just looked around um, and I participated in a number of different organisations doing lots of different things from working in orphanages to working in schools, doing some classroom refurbs, painting, building vegetable gardens. But I guess that experience really for me was quite life-changing because... So how long were you there? Because this was an unexpected yeah, turn in your volunteering. Exactly. So I ended up being in Uganda for three months. Wow. Yeah. And, and again, kind of just roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty because you don't quite know what, you know, what you, you don't have. I mean, we didn't have an organized plan to go, you know, a trip to go to. So it was amazing because I think, you know, I got a real grassroots experience. I managed to, you know, have an opportunity to meet so many amazing people. And what really captured my heart is the fact that children can walk between 10 and 20 kilometres every day on an empty stomach with no shoes on their feet to get to a mud hut that they call school because they want to be there. And I just thought to myself, wow, you know, I remember dragging my feet to school. I think we all kind of probably had moments where we didn't want to go to school, um, where we chucked, you know, chucked sickies and tried to get the day off and all that sort of thing. And just to see these children who just had so much ambition and knew that education was something that could break them free from the cycle of poverty. It was just inspiring. Yeah. And so don't I you thought, find that, yes. well, but don't you find that their, those students' passion for learning was so, like for me and my experience in my time in Nairobi, uh, we rebuilt a primary school in one of the largest informal settlements in Africa. And the fact that they wanted to learn so desperately is such so a much. contrast, right, to how we're raised. Exactly. And I know it's similar for you as it is here. It's the same in our first world countries that we complain about going to school because it's a pain hmm. in the butt. And, you know, we don't yeah. want to we're tired and we'd rather do something else. But, you know, the children that I interacted with, they, their, their whole goal every day was to find some way to learn. And that That's changed right. my perspective entirely. Yeah. How I felt about our children's upbringings for sure. So I get it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's driven also from the parents, which is fantastic. Mm you know, a lot of the mums and dads haven't had the opportunity to have a full course of schooling for themselves and they want better for their children. Mm-hmm. You know, like like all parents do, you know, they want the best for their kid. They want mm-hmm. their kid to succeed. And so I just was so, I guess, inspired by their ambition, blown away by the challenges that they're facing, by, you know, just the sheer determination that they had to want to go to school. And I thought, you know what? I'm one person, but one person can make a difference. So Mm -hmm. I decided, you know, that there and then almost that that was how I was going to use my law degree um, to set up a foundation um, to to really create social change. So did you go back to school and finish your degree? I did. You did. Wow. (laughs) And I was driven then, you know, the first three years of my degree, I was kind of dragging my feet to uni every day going, Mm. I don't really want to be a lawyer. I'm not really driven by money. I just, I've never been really driven by, you know, having a huge bank balance. My upbringing had been very much around volunteering and giving back and service. And then all of a sudden I found myself in Sydney and I kind of was like, I don't know how I can Mm. I can do that work that's so meaningful to me in a way that can actually flow into my everyday and my career. So, yeah, yeah, so I did go back to school, but it was also because I recognized that 
you know, you can't just kind of have credibility um, and experience and skills to go and earn a whole bunch of money and to build schools and to run companies essentially if, if you don't have that background. So I was driven by purpose from that moment. Yeah, that's really interesting too. And I like the fact that you were able to see early on that in order to get to the end goal of your purpose and what you needed to achieve, you still needed to gather skills along the way. And yeah, I mean, it definitely helps to have a law degree behind your name when you're, when you're doing the work you're doing, but you were also just creating skills. You were putting the pieces together that you knew was going to be necessary to create something that had lasting impact. Exactly. And, you know, you can't sort of, you can't always see the challenges that are going to be ahead. But one thing you can do is prepare yourself well, particularly when it comes to the legals and the structure and the way that you run the business. Um, and I think, look, I've used my law degree almost every day since. So it yeah. certainly didn't go to waste. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And I can imagine that, you know, just from the small amount of work that I've done internationally, that there must be some challenges um, legally between Australia and, you know, working in Africa. Plus, if you're going to work with partners around the world, all this stuff comes into play. I can give you an example. Um, this one client that I, I really love that I work with, um, they are an international organization that provides recipro reciprocal hospitality for touring bicyclists. And yeah, cool. It's really cool. We have like 130,000 users around the world. And we did yeah. a, we recently ran a, a fundraising campaign, a donation campaign. And it's something like 10,000 donations were denied through our payment processing systems because certain countries in Asia will not recognize us as a recipient for a charitable donation. So, you know, we have, you know, we have a legal team kind of reviewing it now, but everybody in North America, they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. People do this all the time. And I'm like, well, a payment processor can deny it if they want. They have their own yeah. policy. So I can see why, you know, I, I experienced this stuff firsthand. I don't have a law degree behind my name, but we do have yeah. a group of stakeholders, of course, that participate and help us solve those problems. So I am yeah, exactly. you know, really understanding of how that can be very beneficial. Yeah. And I think, I mean, every, every different stage had different legalities about it, you know, from the acquisition of land through the setting up of the organizations mm -hmm. in both countries and then negotiation and making sure that your assets are, you know, actually properly owned and mm -hmm. land title and all of that side of things. And then right through now to obviously employment law, which is a big part of what I do because I'm managing you know, much larger teams. So I've got to make sure that I'm abiding by each country's legislation. So did you actually set up two nonprofit corporations, one in Uganda and one in Australia? Yes. Yeah, yep. that's a lot. So, <laughs> yeah. So they're set up identically. However, the Australian organization is the parent. Mm. Um, so the global board sits in Australia um, and the Ugandan organization has its own board. Awesome. We're going to be right back with Annabelle. Just give us a few minutes. We're going to hear a word from our sponsors who do so much to help us make this podcast possible and allow us to bring in people from Australia onto our show. We'll be back. Okay. So we were talking about having two different organizations and that the organization in Australia was the parent organization. Now, is that sort of your funding arm? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we, we actually are registered in the States as well. Um, Which I told you, I hope that when you're ready, you know, you, you've, you've got me as a resource. I would love exactly. to help you in the U.S. But I, I think it's great that you looked at all options. 
Yeah, it's important to get it right. I mean, particularly when at the end of the day, I'm dealing with other people's money, um, which is very, you know, um, well, um, you know, it's amazing to get donations from people, but you have to do, make sure that you're doing 100% the right thing with them. And, you know, you don't want to leave any, any gaps, um, particularly in your structure. Yeah. And I, I would say that for those of you that are listening to this and, you know, you do really great things in the community, you know, kudos to you, but I will tell you that it is a completely different ball game when you're working with nonprofit partners in another country, because your level of accountability is, it's just a different, it's a different ball game. So tell me about that. How did you put values in place to evaluate how things work in Uganda? Yeah, it's been an, um, a real learning curve. And I think one of the big things was that their whole organisational purpose um, and value was that we are empowering local people to help themselves. Mm. So everything that we do is locally led and our lens is very much on capacity development. So it's not about me going over there and doing things for people or bringing over teams of volunteers to do things for people. It's about empowering the locals with the right skills that they need so that they can be successful for the long term. So I think keeping that value at the very core of it, which is you know ensuring that it is about empowerment, not disempowerment. It's not about welfare. It's about giving people the skills and the tools that they need to be successful. Um, so that's been that has been probably staying true to that has at times been challenging because, you know, sometimes it's just easier to go, okay, cool. Like I'll get a bunch of volunteers to just go over Mm. and do X, Y, and Z for me, but that's not going to lead to long-term mindset shifting, long-term societal change. So I had to stay really, really core to that all along the journey. Yeah, there was a book, and you might recall the name of this. I, I, it's not coming to me off the top of my head, but there was a book that was published about, um, aid in Africa as a whole and how we, especially Americans, have not Mm. helped to address the issue in really super poor countries because we just go over and give and it's not, you know, it's not allowing people the opportunity to, to learn for themselves. Because first of all, we know that education matters and we know that basic human needs, yes, they matter. but sometimes it's, it's providing them with the opportunity to better their own lives as opposed to us trying to do it for them. Yeah, it's exactly. Um, it's multifaceted. You know, I think when people give, they like to get in some ways and sometimes the getting is through satisfaction Mm -hmm. and, you know, through having, um, you know, when you, when you give, I think you, you do like to be able to be a part of that process and it's completely understandable the way that things have rolled out. I also think that, you know, international aid and development has shifted over time. So there has been, you know, a lot of kind of, um, learnings, you know, from, from the years and years of people trying to do good and trying to help. Um, and then, actually recognizing well giving everybody everything doesn't make any difference you know you've got to empower people to own their own you know projects and own their own growth and so what does that look like you know what are the what are the core you know competencies you focus on when you are working to empower because I know because you and I've talked before so I know that it's important to talk about more than just the, the education piece because there's so much that goes with that to ensure mm-hmm. that, you know, students are set up to be successful in their learning. Yeah, I mean, it's very holistic would be the best way of describing it. Um, we try to tackle all angles. So internally, when I recruit staff, 
Um, we have a lot of, um, we do a lot of leadership workshops. We do a lot of work um, to provide the teachers with additional professional development so that they can be the very best that they can be. Then we bring in the parents and we do a lot at the top in terms of, you know, attitudinal shifting, things like making sure that we're working with the parents around keeping the girls in school, mm -hmm. um, trying to decrease things like child abuse, trying to decrease issues that come from malaria, sanitation issues like hand washing. Um, and then, of course, you know, the whole sexual reproduct reproductive health. So access to information really is a big part of it. Um, and then um, for the kids, you know, obviously it's ensuring that they've got the skills and um, the knowledge that they're going to use to be able to pass their exams, but also the life skills that they're going to need to mm. succeed, whether or not they're a doctor or a lawyer. You know, if they go back onto the farm, then they're going to be able to be a successful farmer as well. And I think it's just, it's, it's sort of shifting the goalposts on what success looks like. Because for us, maybe success looks like becoming a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer. Mm -hmm, right. But in their context, we're dealing with extremely vulnerable communities. And most of them, you know, and a country where unemployment rates are high. So we need to make sure that what we're doing is also contextually appropriate as well. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, I love that so much because this whole broad picture that you're talking about is so important because you can't just take a kid to school and teach them everything and give them food and water while they're at school and expect that if that doesn't carry over at home, it doesn't matter. You know, it really, you know, it, it does have to be a full approach. And I think a lot of people, especially, and I'm, I'm going to you know, generalize Americans here, but a lot of people, if you haven't experienced a country where a large majority of them don't even have access to running water, let alone food. I mean, the unemployment rate itself is one major thing to consider, but basic human needs not being met is, a, is important. And I think that what you're talking about is changing the mind shift that those things have to matter. You know, sanitation, exactly. safety and reproduction, and just understanding that, you know, what it's like to create a budget and set yourself up to be able to provide for yourself and your family, no matter what it is. It could just be farming. That's right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But, but that whole picture, as opposed to scrambling day to day to try to find fresh water, those are just, they're just totally two different um, lifestyles. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, a lot of it has taken getting down, um, absolutely getting down to the, to, to the ground level. So, you know, you mentioned budgeting. One of the big things that we have to do is we go through line by line with every teacher to go through what they're going to need for the year ahead. You know, mm -hmm. that's a planning process. And then that goes up to the management level. And then that, that obviously goes up for approval. But, you know, I want ownership. I want people to understand that they're accountable for certain things that, you know, it's not just a free flowing tap, that the donations aren't just going to keep coming. So it's like, how many pencils are you going to need for the next 12 months? And that in itself has been a process to yeah. get people to think not about just today not just about tomorrow but about a whole year ahead and it's not necessarily the way that the Ugandans have always been operating so it's sometimes painstaking you know there are times where I want to rip my hair out because I'm like oh my god this is so you know I'm spending hours working on how many lead pencils and how many books we're going to need but I know that once we go through the process once and twice and three times, it's going to start to stick. And that's when the change really, really happens and you see results. Yeah, that must be, that must be quite a challenge because it, again, you're talking mindset shift. You're, you're taking them out of just trying to survive and exactly. looking at ways to thrive for a long period of time. And is any of the models that you're talking about, we'll use the pencils and books as an example, mm -hmm. is, 
is there a process to sustainability for that? I mean, are they able to create any type of social enterprises to self-fund? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're working on now. So what one of the, you know, big kind of um, programs that we're mapping out at the moment is the agriculture. So we're mm. positioned on 42 and a half acres of land and we did that on purpose. So we use about 30 acres of the land that we own to grow the food that we use to feed the kids every day. Mm -hmm. So that obviously mitigates our operating expenses. We've got an apiary on site. So we produce honey that we sell to the market. Um, we've got a piggery, um, which produces pork, obviously that you said, you, know, a pig, we sell. you said piggery. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. Is that, a, is that a word piggery? That's a pig. Yeah. Farm. Oh, it is in Australia. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe it's a new word in, in America now. Piggery. <laughs> there you go. Um, and a goat farm. So, you know, these are the sorts of projects that we're looking to grow and scale. We've just put in a greenhouse to help to produce more high value crops. Um, you know, obviously the perishables, you can sell them into the hotel market. They need lettuce, they need tomatoes, they need cabbages, those sorts of things. And I think um, to be able to pick a model and scale is really important. Okay, we're going to keep talking because I have a couple of questions about how how you take this model and where where did you start with and where are the educational pieces and oh my gosh so many questions but first we're going to hear <laughs> a quick uh note from our sponsor who helps make this possible so we'll be right back okay so first of all let's go back and uh, how many acres did you say you have 42.5 okay so 42.5 acres and was it your intention from the beginning when you purchased that land to build a place to educate students and create sustainable ways to feed them while they're at school? Because is it, is it possible that the majority of those kids go home and don't have access to food in their home? Or is this a community Absolutely. that, yeah. Okay. No. That was yeah. my question. So most of the baseline, most of the baseline surveys that we conducted were showing that kids were only eating one meal a day. And for most of them, it was deficient of nutrients. So they're eating, you know, maize, ground maize, which, you know, it doesn't have a huge amount of nutritional benefit. When we first enrolled the kids and it still continues to happen, their growth is stunted. So mm -hmm. often they look like they're five and they're actually eight. And then as mm -hmm. soon as you start feeding them, they shoot up and they start, you know, their hair gets better, their skin looks better, their eyes are clearer. So it's, it is a real issue. And again, if you're not healthy, how do you learn? So it all feeds back into the mission, which is the delivery of quality education. Oh, so much here. I want to ask. Um, okay, let's start with it. Let's start with the development of the first school. So yep. what what was that process like when you acquired land and moved into a community? <laughs> You're gonna because, love these. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I, I because I guess part of it's because I, you know, my experience. I, I have an experience a little bit, so I can only imagine the kind of hurdles you faced when you decided to do this. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's old system title, um, which means you've got to find that piece of paper in order to own the land title. Um, the first 10 acres that we went to acquire were owned um, by an elderly lady. She was illiterate. So when we did the land transaction, um, she put her thumbprint as her signature. She'd never held a pen or pencil before. Wow. Um, and basically with that 10 acres of land, which was jungle at the time, 
because there was no such thing at the time as an electronic funds transfer, we're going back about 10 years now, but that was in, in Uganda, there was no EFT, we actually had to transact the land in cash. Wow. Now, one Australian dollar is 2,800 shillings. So okay. we were literally transacting in wheelbarrows full of cash to this old lady who was selling her first, you know, oh 10 acres of land. How much security um, did you have with you? I mean, we were in the bank, like actually in the bank, you know, it yeah. was just crazy. And then kind of adding to that was the fact that, you know, it was such, it was needle in a haystack to even find that land title because when yeah. you go to the registry office in Uganda, there was no electronic system. So it was right. literally just pieces of paper stacked up, you know, all through these rooms. And if you can't find that piece of paper, then you're not going to be to own the land so yeah. it was just this crazy kind of wild west um transaction um but i think when after we went to it the first time the second and third time became easier so we acquired another two and a half acres adjacent and then we acquired another 30 so we, we had to actually conduct three transactions which probably wasn't ideal but the other part of it was we simply didn't have the funding up front to be able to purchase all the land that we needed straight right. away but how interesting must that have been? I mean, really, if I, if I, if I think about it and I, I imagine you going through that, I mean, I, I know my, my listeners cannot see you, but I can see your face and it's, it just lights up because you must have learned so much. Like those are yeah. lifelong experiences that'll stay with you forever. Totally. And it's an interesting, it's a really interesting, um, process as well. I mean, it's negotiation at its finest and you know, the, the big, part of it again was that whole concept as I spoke about earlier which is we had to ensure that we had the buy-in from the local community before we even started right so we weren't going to purchase land in an area where people didn't want a school where they weren't going to build the school for themselves where they weren't going to want to come and be teachers where the parents weren't going to want to send their kids so there was that whole piece at the beginning which was you know do you guys want a school? What does the school look like for you? How are you you know how are you guys going to um going to own this um, for yourselves and so that piece was also really important that we had to get right because we weren't going to just walk into a community put up a school and they're like oh we don't want to send our kids here so how did you get that information village elders um, were pivotal and one of the great things about Ugandans as I said earlier is that the um, mindset and the value for education is so strong. Mm. So when we we started working with the local government, well, first we started at the national level. So we went to the Ministry of Education and we asked them where are the areas that you need schools the most. We were directed in a number of areas. And then when we reached the area in which we're operating, we went down to the local government and we were working directly with the local government, who is the voice for the community. Mm. And then we found the the influential elders and we engage them as a committee to basically start to map out what this school was going to look like and you know a lot of it sort of we didn't necessarily think that we were going to um was going to be a part of it for instance you know in the local community there was no access to clean water at all so the people were fetching water from either streams or contaminated sort of um pools and so the first thing that we did was actually just to provide them with boreholes so that the whole community had access to clean drinking water for free. And that was also a sign to the community that we are here for you. This isn't about us. You know, this isn't a Western-led program. You guys need water. Without water, you're all getting sick. So, you know, it was also scaling back and just listening. 
you know, just lit- literally just listening to what was required and trying to meet those needs as well. I listened to your, you speak about this and I think of how many people find it be, to be a challenge to pick up the phone and call a potential client about a sale. And <laughs> oh God, they don't want to meet me then. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, here is Annabelle you know, meeting with village elders and bringing in fresh water as part of your relationship building because it doesn't matter you know, where you are, you are absolutely talking about stepping into a community. First of all, you're white. You know, no, exactly. You know, which you're, is, you know and I'm a female, which yeah, in Uganda is a right. real struggle. You know, like I've been told, I've had people look me in the eye and say to me, you are a female, you belong at home. Yeah. You don't belong in business. And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> don't tell me, don't do that. <laughs> I love it. I love on. that. Well, just think about it. I mean, you are setting, you are setting this example of what, first of all, A, women are capable of, and B, that one person can make change. But you went at it with building a relationship, which we know people want to work with. It doesn't matter where you are in the mm. world what your culture is. People want to work with someone that they like, know, and trust. And so you built that right off the bat and bringing fresh water. I mean, that is, that's a game changer right there. So for those of you that struggle picking up the phone to make another sales call tomorrow, uh, no excuses, no excuses. (laughs) And no excuses. The worst thing thing somebody can say to you is no, right? So at the end of the day, if somebody says no, we're all human. Um, and no, it's okay to receive a no. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong or somebody doesn't like you or what have you. It just is what it is. And I, I believe incessantly in, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I would urge you to get on the phone. Yeah. And build those relationships, you know, find your own way to provide what, what they need, which is what you did. Okay. So you, you were developed, you developed an access to fresh water and worked with the elders Mm -hmm. and did you, were you able to sort of get the community's stamp of approval before you bought the land? Yes, absolutely. And we wouldn't have bought it otherwise. It just, it's not worth it. Now, one of the struggles that we had were that a Westerner had come about five years earlier and promised a school and never come back. Uh, So we were up against some cynicism. Um, hmm. You know, who are you to kind of say that you're going to do this? You know, how can we guarantee you're going to do it? Um, you know, somebody promised us this before and then they never came back. And so we had to develop trust um, mm. and, and earn that. And I think, you know, again, the provision of clean water was something which, you know, did earn some trust. Um, and it was really important that they knew that we were the real deal. Yeah, well, you know, kudos to you. I first, I'm so amazed. I love what you're doing. And I hope that one day I can get to Uganda and see your work. I'd love that's, that. But that's, that's like those first steps, I'm sure were very, very, very difficult. Um, but the next step is raising capital. So how did you yeah. approach, you know, because you know, this is the, the field I work in. And I, yeah, and exactly. you know, I understand how important it is to have, you know, capital, number one, number two, but to get buy-in from, you know, the corporate sector. How did you do that? How did you start it? Yeah, it's, it, it, it was a struggle. Um, as I said to you, I was halfway through a law degree. I was 21 years old. I um, had almost no credibility. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to build credibility and build it quickly. Um, and one of the things I did was get quite a prominent board of directors around me um, who stood you know, as testament to the fact that they believed in what we were going to be doing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I did was I partnered with Rotary International. Now, oh, that Rotary. was yeah. really important because, again, um, you know, I needed as much credibility as I could get. And a lot of people said, you're 21, come back to me when you've grown up or, you know, don't come mm. back to me. Um, you're crazy. Um, go be a lawyer. Go back to being doing charity when, you, when you're at the end of your career. And I kept sort of saying no, and it was the naysayers and the critics who in some ways kind of egged me on um, yeah, to, they want, fueled to want to prove them wrong. Yeah, I yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah. So look, at the beginning, it was a lot of knocking on doors um, with ruthless determination and basically zero fear, I think, because mm-hmm. it's like, I want to build these schools for kids in Uganda who have nothing. If you say no, it doesn't really matter. Um, I'll just move on to the next person. Um, and I guess I'm never one to be, you know, sort of do things slowly. Um, so I struggled to get the first, I guess, $100,000. Um, I'll never forget the first woman that gave me 10000 and that was amazing. Yeah. Um, and I'm still, you know, she's still contributing to this day, but um, it wasn't enough. So... I booked out the grand ballroom at the Hilton Hotel in Sydney and I said to them, I'm going to host a gala and we're going to raise all this money and um, we're going to have 450 guests and it's going to be amazing. Anyway, um, two weeks out, I'd sold 43 tickets and I was oh my. literally having a heart attack. Oh, my goodness gracious. I, can feel, yeah. I actually could just feel your pain. Oh, my. I know. So, and events are hard. Um, so, anyway, I managed to pull in Coca-Cola. I got Havianas on board mm-hmm. and I got some, you know, prominent sponsors um, who, again, lifted the credibility of the event. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, you know, a couple of, like, a, a week out or three days out, I had 650 guests locked in. I had 200 wow. people on a waiting list and when was this? Um, we raised $100,000. It was uh, nine years ago. So we're just actually planning for our 10-year gala. Um, mm, okay. It's gone from raising 100000 to now, you know, raising 500000 So it's it's a oh, really amazing. big event and, and very valuable for brand. Yeah. I mean, raising $100,000 at an event is not as simple as people think. You know, it's not just selling tickets, you know, because the event has costs. And so you have to, in order to exactly. raise $100,000, you are probably raising twice that in order to make the event the draw that creates the brand that people will invest to come back year after year so exactly and you've got to you've got to give a um my view is you've got to have a value for money um and i suppose um memorable experience in order to get people to come back and one thing that i've always prided us on is making sure that the guest really enjoys himself um and if they have a great time then it's not just give me money give me money give me money it's you know let's go dance on the dance floor there's a great band you know great mcs the entertainment's always really top-notch and i think that's that's a really important part of of the retention yeah. Plus, you know, to be honest, at events like that, not everybody's going to care about your cause if they no. love the event, and that's okay. You know, they don't have to necessarily care about the cause. They have to go and have a really good time, and exactly. it's worth the money for them because then it just becomes a special night out, something to look forward to. And you know, they they learn about your cause when they're there. But I find events like that are most successful when they're really good for the for the audience. I find. In my experience, there's so many, you know, organizations that push these, you know, major events that are all about, yeah, uh, all about the cause. And I, I always try to steer people away that your audience isn't necessarily going to be there just for your cause. It's, you know, half yeah. will be there for your cause. The other half is there because they want to have a good time. So make exactly. it a good time, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and that's important. I think if people are going to put their hand in their pocket for, you know, what is a relatively expensive evening, they want to have a great time too. So, yeah. yeah, I think, and that's kind of something that I've learned about the cat raising is that it's about value exchange and it's yeah. about the development of relationships. And I pride, you know, School for Life success on the fact that we have a network um, of really tight relationships with people who are ex- extremely loyal to School for Life because they feel that they're, you know, able to make a difference, they're thanked properly. Um, And I think that they feel part of a community, something bigger than themselves. And that's really important for retention. You've got to make sure that people feel like they're part of something bigger than just themselves. Yeah. That's amazing, Annabelle. That's so true. And people don't necessarily see that all the time. They see, you know, I I got money from you today, at least in the industry you and I work in. I got money today. Yay, I'm good. But that's, you're, you're missing such a huge potential if you're not focusing on fostering that relationship. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think that's the churn and burn that can happen. And I don't believe in that. I believe in, you know, using your network um, to facilitate more introductions, but equally ensuring that your network is fully engaged in what you're doing. And it might be smaller than, say, going for like a large scale kind of machine gun approach. But at the end of the day, it's important I believe, to have that engagement and the real true buy-in, the loyalty that you can create through that. Yeah. And are there an amount of donors or event participants that actually want to go and see the school? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We do programs. Um, We've got parent-child trips these days um, to do sort of an immersion to check it all out. We climb Mount Kilimanjaro every year and a lot of people come over to climb the mountain and then come to the schools. And then just a lot of people who have just been contributing as child sponsors come over because they want to meet their child sponsor. And I think all of that is so, so great. And I, I think if you go to Africa and you see where your dollars are going, um, you are so inspired that you can't help but want to do more. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, mm. that's really great. Okay. So school for life has, was that your, is that the only school or do you have multiple schools in Uganda? We've got three. Yeah. yeah. We have so two you primary went, and one secondary. Okay. So you went through this process that you just explained <laughs> more than once. <laughs> yes. Um, and every, you know, something I haven't mentioned is that every single thing in construction is done by hand. So we oh make my. the bricks on site. We dig the foundations by hand. The steel is fabricated by hand. It, it's literally almost every single thing um, that's done is, is painstaking um, and, you know, and, and slow, but it, it, um, it empowers local people and we employ the people from the surrounding communities to ensure that the money that we're investing isn't just going, you know, into, you know, big companies. It's going straight to the ground and to the people who need it the most. I mean, what a difference. If you see a school down the road 20 years from now and you know that <laughs> you actually made half of the bricks by hand as yep. part of a job that you were hired to do that supplied water and education and food to your community, I I mean, that is, gosh, that must be such an incredible experience to witness the change in those communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can even just visibly see it. You know, when I started, there were two stores in our community. There's now about 10. You know, the cook that's our head cook on site, she lived in a mud hut and she's managed to save enough money to build herself a home that's made out of bricks and has a tin roof. Um, So you Mm. see the flow on effect, the ripple effects that all of this societal change is having. 
And how has this impacted you? <laughs> yeah, hugely. I mean, it's impacted everything. I um, haven't kind of had a normal, um, if there is such thing as normal, but, um, you know, life, my life has been um, in some ways different to those of my cohort. Mm -hmm. um, I've learnt the power of, um, you know, what education can do for you firsthand. And, but I've also been through a lot, you know, there's been significant challenge. There's been, you know, at points anxiety beyond belief because you think, mm -hmm. you know, have I got this? Am I the right person? Mm -hmm. Have I got the right skills? I've had to yeah. grow through every phase. I wasn't born a CEO and all of a sudden in three years I had from 30 staff to 120 and, you know, I'm learning. Mm -hmm. I make mistakes like all the time. Um, but I think that's all okay so long as you can learn from those mistakes and you know you move forward in um, a positive way and you don't make those mistakes again all right listeners we're going to be back in just one one minute we are going to hear from our sponsors and we're going to get back with annabelle i'm so privileged and honored to have you um on my show because not only do you represent a what you set your mind to you can achieve because you started this young because you felt the drive the pull to be and do something more than just you know a, a career and you followed passion and your work to do that is changing thousands and thousands of lives today and literally forever so I'm super honored to have you on and, thank you you know kudos to you because I know that this has probably taken you out of the trajectory of what you thought your life was gonna be and <laughs> and you know, you're sacrificing a lot of yourself to do good things and more of us should spend time doing that. Yeah. I mean, look, I've received far more than I've given. I can tell you that, um, mm. you know, the experiences, the, um, the, the fact that you've got children who walk in malnourished, having never tied up a pair of shoelaces because they've never owned a pair of shoes, um, never seen a pen or pencil who are coming and speaking English sentences to you, you know, five years later, you can see the impact that every single painstaking and at times, you know, challenging moment has um, on the lives of, of children and their parents and their families. And how does like your family and friends feel about all this? I'm sure from when you started till today, it's completely different. I mean, that I can see, but, but you know, yeah. I, I'll tell you that in, you know, for me starting my own business last year, for me over the age of 40, for the first time starting my own company and, um, it's, it's hard, right? It, a lot of mm. people can't relate when you set your goals to someplace outside of what the lane they thought you were in. You literally swerve into a different lane and everybody goes, whoa, where are you going? Why are you doing that? And, and yeah. it almost makes them reflect back upon themselves on where they're at. And I, I can only imagine in your case, you must have experienced a lot of that. Yeah, there's been a lot. Um, I think um, it was a bit tricky for mum and dad to wrap their head around in the early days. Um, I was quite a high kind of achieving child and I think, you know, everyone's mm. had a high hopes that I was going to be a, a high performing lawyer. Um, yeah, yeah but, right. Um, you know, and I've come from um, a, a childhood where, you know, I've been taught that nothing comes easy. Um, hard work is everything. And my parents are so determined and the sacrifices that they made to give me the education that I had um, have been huge. So in some ways I think it was just like, whoa, our little girl is 
going to build schools in a continent that we've never been to um, in a place that we don't quite understand. Mm -hmm. And there was certainly a lot of reservation. Um, And it was, it was tricky to navigate that particularly um, with, you know, quite a conservative family, but um, they've been over now a number of times. They absolutely love yeah. it. They can see the difference it's making. Oh. They couldn't be bigger advocates if oh, they tried. See, that's yeah. it. I love that so much. Exactly. Like my heart just swelled a little bit right there, to be yeah. honest. Because you, you know that, you know, as a parent, you can you can see how they can feel that way, but you still had to follow your exactly. passion and do what you needed to do. But yeah. Um, and how about your your peers, like your friends, like what? You know, how, how has that impacted your relationships? <laughs> I mean, it's hard because I found what I was really passionate about um, at a very young age. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I, I haven't been overly able to um, empathise when friends say that, you know, they're just mm. sort of hating their job and they're only doing yeah. it for the money and they don't really want to be there. And I, I don't live a life like that I live a life where I jump out of bed and I'm excited to be doing what I do so there's been you know times where I'm kind of um yeah it's different and I think sometimes you know the reality of it is is sometimes charity is tarred with a bit of a brush of um oh you know it just that's not real life that's just helping people and you know you don't have a real job and you know you, you know do you get paid a salary? Are you full time? Do you, what do you do on the side to make this work? You know, all of that stuff. And it's like, you know, it can feel, it can feel patronizing, but you know, you've got to understand that, you know, that's just, it's an education thing as well. Right. And do you, so do you surround yourself with people that are, you know, passionate about your success in what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. I've got the most amazing mentors um, and I would be nowhere without them. Mm. And I think, you know, to the listeners, if you don't have a mentor, then make sure you get one. Um, And if you don't know how to get one, just generally just ask. I've just been blown away by how generous people are with their time. And mentors stop you from making the mistakes that they probably made 10 years ago. Um, But my cohort of fellow sort of, I describe it as kind of startup CEOs, have been invaluable as well because we're Mm -hmm. similar ages. We've all been driven by passion um, Mm -hmm. and we found ourselves with similar challenges. Um, So it's really good to just have that ability to bounce off somebody who's been there or is there um, to, to, to help to get some advice and guidance. Yeah, I, I recorded a podcast about the value of your tribe. So that's why I asked that question. So because, yeah, it's been a real process for me. And I can 100% tell you that if I didn't have a group of women, you know, sort of circle into my life at the time that I started my company, I wouldn't be here. Because yes. so much so much of this is so foreign to so many people that only those that have walked your path before or, you know, are doing it at the time can really understand and help give you any sort of direction. And mentors, I never really needed or had a mentor until I started my business. And now, oh my gosh, it is, it's what keeps, mm-hmm. you know, it keeps me moving through the day. And there are so many questions that I come up with that I research and I figure out and I handle. And then there are some that just people with experience can really quickly help you navigate or avoid all the mistakes they made. That's what I love exactly. about the people exactly. in my life. They, you know, they tell you, whoo, you know, these are the, don't do that. 
yeah, don't do that. And you're like, oh, good, I just dodged the bullet. <laughs> I totally. think that's that must be you know hugely helpful for you because you're you know you're relatively young and you no, know, I this is a compliment, and yeah. you have achieved so much at Thank your you. age that. I'm trying to imagine like, what's next? I mean, what's, where does this go? Where do you see this going? Um, we're going to scale now. Um, so over the last 10 years, we've built three schools and we're educating a thousand kids and that's amazing. Yes. But um, that's not my life ambition. I want to have 30 schools and 10,000 kids at, at the very minimum. Wow. So we are um, starting that process. We're just um, about to kind of partner with another organization that's doing a similar sort of um thing to us and that will help us to get some scale quite quickly and then um, we'll start to essentially roll out the model and continue to help and impact more people so it's more of a I'm looking for a global network really I want to make this into you know an institution where kids can really really succeed Mm. and was your plan to stay just in Uganda um, no, not really. It's, um, I'd like to scale out. Um, but again, <clears throat> key component is to ensure that the local leadership is driving the success. Yes, right. Um, so identification of, um, some more partners where there are, you know, really great local leaders who probably are struggling with access to capital and could use probably some more support around governance, risk, compliance, management. Um, And I think that's where we can add real value. Right. And I'm thinking there's a lot of partners that you can work with continually globally to get into different, um, to different countries and continents that are, you know, ready and able to embrace this type of work. Um, But it's it's, it's a process. I totally understand that. Yeah, it's a process. It takes time. Um, I think, you know, I've learned a lot over the last 10 years and, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you're just going to consolidate now. You know, you've built three schools. That's enough. I think at the end of the day, no, um, three schools isn't enough, particularly not with the amount of lessons that have been learned. I think, you know, to go through that learning process and then just go, okay, cool, that's enough um, would be a bit of a waste. So let me ask you this. So for any of our listeners here, um, whether they're located in Colorado or anywhere in the United States, if they wanted to become involved and, and help you achieve this goal to scale and continue to drive change, how can they get involved? Yeah, I mean, the best way is to email me. Um, our website is schoolforlife.org.au and you could just email me directly at hello at schoolforlife.org.au and I'd love your involvement so no help um, too small or too big so we we really we could use some extra hands and as I said we've got C3 in the states but um, we're not raising a heap of money there at the moment because I haven't had the resource to get it really off the ground mm. um, but we can we can accept donations from the states too amazing and there's um, I don't know if you have heard of um, project cure which is located mm-hmm. out of it's run out of Colorado and they deliver medical supplies all over the world and I'm gonna go amazing. ahead and make an intro uh, introduction to you his name is um, Doug amazing. Jackson yeah and I know that they work all over the world but he might be able to open some some doors for you too and so anyone that's Definitely. listening if you you know first of all if you are not finding a way to have some passion and purpose in your life even if you work a nine-to-five job job, you know, take, 
you know, Annabelle's lead and find something that you are really passionate about and jump in with two feet. And it doesn't have to be, if you don't want it to be your career, it doesn't have to be your career, but find a way to give back because there's so many of us that live life of privilege. And, you know, we, we have so much to be grateful for. And there are so many people that don't have access to that. And I find, exactly. you know, this is why I do what I do. You know, people see me working on the business side of nonprofit partnerships, but ultimately the reason why I do that is because the more work we do to help businesses invest, the more nonprofits are going to be funded. And it's a cyclical process where, you know, the more nonprofits that receive funding, I've experienced firsthand how that creates greater impact across so many communities. So if, you know, you know, if people are not involved, find something to be really passionate about. And if you don't know what that is, go try, pick five causes that you think you might be exactly. interested in. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be dogs. It could be cats. It could be totally school. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. yeah. Just do something that's bigger yeah. than yourself. And, you know, I can guarantee you'll get so much more um, out of it than you'll ever think. And there'll be things that come out of it that you don't expect. And that's, what's amazing. I think it's so, yeah, it's, it's really valuable. But you know what, this is what lights you up, Annabelle. Your, your spirit (laughs) is so full and your light is so bright because you are living that you are filling yourself up every day. And it's amazing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So how can people um, find you other than schoolforlife.org.au? What other social media handles? Yeah, we're on we'll drop this in Instagram, the show notes too. Okay. Um, Instagram, School for Life Foundation, also on Facebook, Twitter, all channels. Um, if you Google School for Life, it'll come up. They can follow um, you. Great. You've got to follow our Instagram because there's lots of crazy kids dance videos, which everybody loves. Oh, um, that's super. The funny. positivity and happiness of kids who have nothing is just overwhelming. So it'll definitely put a smile on your face. Um, oh, I love it. I And if I haven't followed you on Instagram, I'm going to go do it right now. And people, you should do. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Definitely. So. Annabelle, there's one thing I have to ask you, which is something, if you've listened to my podcast, you know that I ask my guests this question because, you know, this is, this is you and the great work that you're doing. And, you know, I, it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to share your story. And Grit and Grace is the name of the podcast because we know that as women, we have to be really gritty to get stuff done and you know, really, you know, drive that charge, but we're still women. And so we, you know, try to balance that with grace. So I want to know what percentage of Grit and Grace do you operate at, at on most days? <laughs> at least 80% grit, yes. 20% grace. <laughs> yes. This is why we get along Probably. so well. Probably more like 90. I don't know how graceful I am. It's funny that, you know, there's a lot of women like you and I that we drive the charge and most of us sit between 60 and 80% grit most of the days. I like to say that some days I have to give myself more grace. I'm working on it because I think that we should give ourselves more grace. But you know what? When I almost swore that, but when stuff, I was going to say when SHIT just needs to get done, you just got to do it and get the grace. It's just got to get done. Totally. Just get it done. Hook in, get it done. Well, listen, I cannot thank you enough for making some time to join thank us. You. And share with everybody the great work that you're doing. And I look forward to continuing this conversation as you grow and scale. And I will, uh, boy, this is, this, you have officially been added to my list of places I'm going to be in the near future. And I would love to come Definitely. see your school. We'd love and that. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Maybe we'll bring a group of Ladies Chit Chat Club listeners Please with do. us. Oh yeah. my gosh, that would be amazing. All right, it's so going on good. the list. <laughs> Definitely. Please. That'd be amazing. We'd love to have you. 
Well, thank you so much, Annabelle. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, my friends. So this is what it's like to live life with passion and purpose. And I really love Annabelle's story because not only is she doing the things that she's called to do and she's, you know, she's driving ahead and getting it done with so much, you know, just desire to make change and her ripple effect across the world is going to be there forever. So it's amazing. So my friends, I encourage you to go out and be fierce and be your best self.